Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 22. The last time we took a look at the presentation of the New Jerusalem, the city of God, and today we're going to see uh, some of the inner workings of that city, and also we're going to be finishing the last chapter of the book of Revelation. Now, we're going to understand the concept, or try to understand the concept today of what it means to be in heaven, what eternity means, what God dwelling with man, God being with us means, and we'll see that there's a point in history that all these three things converge. So you may hear me interchange the word heaven with eternity. And I'll explain, if you're going to fall asleep, don't do it at the last five minutes of the sermon. Because that's where everything comes together and makes sense. Or I hope it does. So this book is going to close with an encouraging and I believe a delightful and uplifting message. This is what we've all been waiting for. We've been in this book for months. We saw the fire and brimstone. We saw the wrath of God. We saw the cataclysmic events on the earth. And today we're going to talk about heaven, right? And that's what gives us our hope. We enjoy our lives here, but it's even going to be more enjoyable in eternity. Some have tried to make it the reversed. Have all the fun here while you can because heaven's going to be boring. And we're going to go into it and see why that's not true. It's another lie from Satan. So, Revelation 22, starting with verse 1. It says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life. Again, this is the Apostle John speaking. Clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever. In the book of Genesis, we saw a literal garden of Eden, a paradise. Uh, it was forfeited when mankind, men and women, sinned. It was taken away. And here, those Edenic characteristics are regained. Number one, the pure river of water. This proceeds from God's throne. This proceeds directly from God's throne. That's the source of this pure water. Today we look at reservoirs, we look at treatment plants, but this pure water is crystal clear, refreshing, and it comes from God himself. Now I believe, there's, you know, some say, well that's just purely physical, and some say, well that's purely allegorical. Uh, this isn't the coward's way out, but I think it's a little of both. I think the water is going to be refreshing to us, and we're going to talk about eating in heaven and eternity and that sort of stuff. I think it will be refresh, refreshing physically to us and also refreshing spiritually. Jesus spoke about if we believe in him that torrents of living waters would flow from our hearts, which was emblematic of the Holy Spirit. So I believe this water serves a dual purpose. Two, the tree of life. Again, this was lost to mankind in Genesis 3. I find it interesting for those who try to allegorize all of Genesis. Well, if you have to allegorize Genesis, well, you're going to have to allegorize Revelation because it refers back to Genesis. And then what's, what, do you, what do you do in the middle? You, you start again in the dangerous ground when you say the Bible is just a big fairy tale. So then as people of faith, we don't know what, we're, what we believe because we're confused, aren't we? And that's not the case. So the tree of life was lost to mankind in Genesis 3. It was a vehicle to immortality for Adam and Eve. And now it's returned. And the way it's worded, this is either a really huge tree or there's multiple trees, because it's so big, it's on either side, and it's kind of hard from the wording to understand, but it's either a really huge tree, 
or it's on both sides of the road and there's multiple trees or the river. A few things about this tree, it appears that most, if not all, the tree is edible. We know that at least the fruits and the leaves are from the scripture. The leaf consumption is for healing and the fruit consumption appears to maintain immortality again. Don't ask me how it's done. <laughs> there's going to be, a, I tell you, probably the biggest challenge was the last two chapters studying this book. Um, because, you know, I'm a finite person, we're all finite, and I'm trying to explain to you God. I'm trying to explain to you the infinite, the incredible. You know, it's like two-dimensional flat people trying to understand three-dimensional objects. So I'm doing the best I can. It is a challenge, and there's going to be times where I'm just going to say, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. When you see it, you're going to love it. That's all I can tell you. This leads us, and we're going to go through a few questions. I want to take it a little light today. This is a really light topic. It's really enjoyable, and um, you know, I've heard these questions over the years, so I want to kind of address them. The first one is, will we eat in eternity? Right? Everybody wants to know that, especially Italian people. <laughs> this passage, in addition to Jesus' post-resurrection scriptures where he ate, leads us to believe that we will eat in eternity. That's good news. With some differences. Jesus ate, you like that. <laughs> Jesus ate as a man to survive. Even after the 40 days, he was weak. Why? Because he was fasting. Plus, he was also being you know, assaulted by Satan in a sense, but um, he had to eat. He had to be refreshed after those, those days of fasting. But in the resurrected form, he ate differently. He ate for fellowship. You have anything to eat, he said to uh, Cleopas and the other disciple with him. And they ate and they broke bread and, and they were, their eyes were open to who Jesus really was. So there was more of a communion, more of a fellowship going on there. Now, I just have to digress because, you know, I love to play with biology and science and all that stuff, but the human body. In its current form, the human body is nothing more than a great machine. And like all great machines, combustion engines, there's an efficiency rating on those machines, right? It talks about heat dissipation, how much fuel is used, how much is, is wasted and spent, uh, lost heat loss, uh, how much work it can do based on how much fuel. You get a car, how many miles per gallon do you get on that car? How efficient is it? So the human body has an efficiency rating between 35 and 65% depending on the body type and the type of work done. If it's mental work versus you know, physical labor, it's going to expend fuel in a different, uh, different way. I believe the 35 to 65% is low because of sin. If you think about it, Adam, who was supposed to live for eternity, was the prototype. You know, this, this body is okay, but Adam, if he was here, he'd be the prototype, right? And I believe that Adam had a 100% efficiency rate. And of course, after the fall, that dropped dramatically. As you know, the human body can't eat, utilize everything eaten, and the unused portion is, shall we say, waste or discarded. I believe, based on scripture, we'll be able to eat in eternity for enjoyment without the problems, shall we say, of digestion assimilation. So we'll be able to eat, fellowship, commune, right? But we won't have the belching, bloating, hiatal hernias, hemorrhoids. <laughs> you get the picture. Intestinal troubles. I don't know how God's going to do it, but he's going to do it. Three, the tree of life yields fruit every month. Now, I wonder, in speculation, does that mean there'll be no winter? Does that mean that this tree will give a crop um, all throughout the year and there won't be any winter? It's going to yield different types of fruits uh, every month. 
maybe no winter. Like if you, just, if you subscribe to the water canopy theory in Genesis, where it says that there was water that separated the firmaments from the firmament, and that's where we get the whole uh, greenhouse effect and uniform temperature, is it possible that this is going back to that type of perfection that God pre created in the beginning? It's possible. But I'm encouraged already because I love to eat and I don't like to work in a cold weather. So this is good so far. And furthermore, I'll be retired. You want to know why? Well, they're not going to need pastors. Everybody's saved. They don't need me. God will be teaching everybody. And they won't need police officers because the place is safe. So guess what? I'm going to kick back and watch all you guys work. <laughs> I'm kidding. In verse 3, I'm kidding because in verse 3 it says we will all serve him, but we will do it gladly. And really, that's something that we should be doing now. If we've been a Christian for any time and we don't serve in any way, it's something to consider, right? There's always a way. See, God made us, and this isn't a dig, this is an encouragement. God made us all unique. I see the worship team, you know, it's been three and a half years and Dave still won't me, let me get onto the worship team because I can't sing, can't play an instrument, so that's not my talent. But we all have talents, we all have gifts, there's all things that we can do. God has made us unique in that way. So it's an encouragement. We should all use those gifts in a unique way to serve God and further the kingdom of heaven. Local churches always need help. The community always needs help. I'm really excited for the trend outreach. I really hope that the weather is good. We got a small team of folks from our church that go down the trend and bless those people. That's a way to serve God. Um, and, and it's cool because I get a little credit for that, being a pastor, you know? <laughs> But the missions, even missions, those who do missions, either local outreaches or going to you know, another country and preaching the, the gospel, that's another way to serve God. If we don't further the kingdom of heaven now, why not? Because it's our faithfulness here that prepares us for eternity. It's not that we say, well, today's the time, you know, in this life it's a time just to serve myself, and I'll worry about all that stuff when I get to heaven. That doesn't make any sense. It's counterintuitive. The time to serve is to, is, is to serve now. Imagine if every Christian, every Christian on the planet did the one thing that they were good at and didn't burn themselves out, just gave a little effort in the, in the gifts that God has bestowed upon them. How would the world be different? Well, we might not need any government programs, social programs, because if every Christian, think about it, you, you have the ability to, to make money. You have the ability to, uh, to be a prayer warrior. You have the ability to encourage people. With the diverse gifts, we wouldn't need social programs, would we? Because we would be doing God's work. Churches would never need to ask for help, and there would never be ministry burnout because everything would be taken care of. You know, when, I say, when we say serve, serve, serving feels good. In the Old Testament, the priests had a certain type of garb that they wore, a certain type of clothing. And God said specifically there were certain materials to make the priest's clothing out of and certain materials not to make the priest's clothing out of. And the reason being is because when the priests served God, he didn't want them to sweat. What's the message behind that? Serving God shouldn't be work. It should be enjoyable. You know, I just use myself for an example. I don't sit there during the week and go, oh, I put so much time into these messages, history, Greek. You know what? It's just a burden. I actually enjoy what I do here, and I'm glad to serve the Lord. When I chose to sign up as a pastor, I said, I gave my life to him and said, you know what? I'm your slave. Do with me as you will. I used to be a slave to sin, but now I'm your slave, and you're a much better master than sin was. So you've got to look at it like that. 
There's people who want to leave, and listen, I'm not, believe it, I'm not, I'm not knocking the book as much as I'm making a point, but the book, The Purpose Driven Life, why are Christians looking for purpose? If we're reading our Bibles, if we're doing a little bit, if we're reading a, a you know, few verses a day, there's the purpose. God gives you purpose in his word. Why are we looking for purpose from other men, from other authors? We get so caught up in reading everybody else's book, but oh yeah, I've got to have time for the Bible. You want a purpose-driven life? Read God's word. He will give you the purpose that he's designed you for. In verse 4 and 5, it says, We shall see his face. In Exodus 33, the Bible says that no man shall see God's face and live. But in Matthew 5, Jesus spoke of the day when we would see God face to face. And here it is. There's also the writing of God's name on the forehead. We've covered that. We also covered the light issue in chapter 21. And chapter 21 really goes with this. So if you haven't, uh, you can get it a free download on the website. It really will help to bolster what we're talking about today. But taken all together, this is an intimacy and a relationship issue. This is the theme through the Bible. The whole Bible could be summed up as relationship lost and relationship gained. Very simple message. We, through our sin and rebellion, lost that relationship with God. But God has always wooed us from the beginning, come back to me, my children. Come back to me, my prodigal son. My arms are always open to you. You read that story about the prodigal son and the father. He just saw the son and... You know, Dave and I were covering it, and Dave said, I could just imagine the father looking over the horizon, just waiting for a glimmer of his son. And he bolted from the house and threw himself on his son. And in those cultures, Middle Eastern men wouldn't do that. But Jesus was showing how gracious God is, how loving God is, how much he wants us to come back. Relationship lost and relationship gained. I don't think it's presumptuous of me to say this, but I, I believe that God can't wait to embrace us completely as his children. And that's the moment we've all been waiting for. And as great as you could imagine it, it's going to be, you're going to be blown away when it happens to you. Because we've lived, and if those of you who are older than me have lived longer than me in a life where we haven't literally embraced God. So when it happens, it's going to be incredible. It's going to be incredible. Do we all have the same heart to embrace our Lord? Is that our heart's desire? And it doesn't mean we have a death wish, you know? It doesn't mean, oh, I want my life to end. No. But if the Lord came back today, I'd be thrilled. If I live a long life and it's a good life and the Lord comes back, I'm still thrilled. Either way, it's good. But I look forward. That's the blessed hope. The blessed hope is that we will be resurrected. And that gives us the fuel and the joy and the excitement now. And it's something that, again, it's not a dig, but it's the more we are frightened by it, we don't get the whole picture yet. And it's just an understanding process, that's all. The more we trust in what eternity is like, the more we're really starting to meditate and believe and know what God is doing and really understanding his word. And I've got to tell you, I've been in many near-death situations, obviously as a police officer, and I'm not afraid of death. My only concern is separation from my family because, you know, I want to support them and what's going to happen. So if I die tomorrow, somebody take care of my wife and my kid, will you? <laughs> but that's not the issue, you know? There is no fear in me of death. I've run into it almost several times. But it's, I guess, the emotional issue of that separation. But somebody explained it this way. We're all going to a party. And some of us get through the door first. They walk through. They're at the party. And some of us, it's a few years later. But once we all get to the party, it's like time hasn't elapsed. That was a great analogy. 
I'd like to steal it, but I try to give people credit for it. I don't even know who said it. But that's the truth. It's like a party. Some of us get there first, some of us get there later, but eventually we're all at the same party, and it doesn't end. So this, isn't this a great chapter? I really, I really like this. Verse 6. Then he said to me, These words are faithful and true, and the Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show his servants the thing which must shortly take place. Verse 7, in the study Bible, the words are in red, which means that Jesus is speaking. Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now I, John, saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw, I fell down to worship before the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, See that you do not do that, for I am your fellow servant, and of your brethren the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, Do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. So we have confirmation here by number one, an angel, and number two, Christ. And the apostle John, once again, is overwhelmed by these events. Remember, we covered this in Revelation once before. You're like, oh, that sounds familiar. He, this is the second time he does this. He gets so overwhelmed, he falls at the feet of the angel to worship him. But what we also see, the words of Jesus is the sixth blessed. We've covered five. This is the sixth blessed, and then there's one more in this book. And it's very similar to Revelation 1.3. He says, Behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. What does that mean? Well, next Sunday we're going to start the book of James, and James says, be a doer of the word and not just a hearer, right? You keep the words of the prophecy of this book, you're not just going to hear it. It's going to trickle down into your soul and your whole being and your will, and your will and your soul and your movement is going to be transformed by what you've heard. Some people just hear, and if it was possible, it could go in one ear and out the other. And some take in God's word, they drink it in, and it just has this assimilation process, and it just filters down into our soul, and it affects every part of our being. Are we obeying God, or are we just reading his word? Is his word just good for Sunday morning? The Bible says that, in, particularly in Samuel, it says, I desire obedience over sacrifice. If God had his choice, you're going to sacrifice, or you're going to obey me? God would prefer that we obey him. It's important. And also, this book is prophecy. It's not allegorical because it says so. It says it right here. It's prophecy. In addition to that, John is overwhelmed by these visions, but he's not dreaming this. He's an active participant. He goes from God's visions and God's word to an angel rebuking John and saying, get up. So John is an active participant in what's going on here. And I say that because there's a movement, and I call them revisionist historians in the Christian realm, there's a movement to allegorize the book of Revelation, to say you know, something was wrong with John, he, he was having a bad dream or whatever, but you know, that's not true, that's not the case. I mean, all this has really good foundation in the Old and New Testament, really good precedence here, and it's saying it right here. Okay, this is certainly a book that needed to be canonized, and it was. But what I love about the Apostle John is he could have left this part out. This was a less than stellar moment for the Apostle, right? If you really look at the book of John and you look at his behavior throughout the Gospels, you're like, man, John was one of the A-teamers out of those Apostles. He was right on the money. 
But here he's writing this account, and he doesn't omit that he's flawed. He doesn't omit that he failed twice miserably, and it probably was a great embarrassment. But I love that. And we see that with many of God's vessels. They're not afraid to admit they're flawed. And I think that's important, too, um, with leadership in, in Christianity. You know, I grew up in a church where you didn't question the leadership. You didn't ask them questions. You didn't ask them why they did the things that they did. And uh, they gave a, an appearance of perfection. So as you're growing up, you look at that and you go, I can't meet that. I just, you know, I, I quit. I can't do this. And you walk away. But, you know, we're just men, just men and women. We're just human beings like everybody else. If you cut my arm, I bleed like the rest of you. And that's important because we strive for that spiritual perfection, but none of us attain it here. And if anybody tells you that they have, they're lying to you because the scripture tells us so. Verse 10, he's told, don't seal up the words of the prophecy. The time is at hand. This stuff is not a secret. Wow. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, Daniel is told to shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. And in Revelation, he's told the opposite. Don't seal up the book. Make sure everybody hears about this, starting with the believers. And that tells us, folks, that we are living in exciting times. I'm actually, you know, I was kind of on the fence when I was praying about doing Revelation, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I could do it justice. It looks pretty heavy. But I tell you, it was a blessing to me because I even look at things that are happening in the world and 30 years ago, Christians were saying the same thing. Oh, we're in the time of the end. But I look at stuff now and the technology's there. The, the, uh, the country's alignment is there according to the scripture. World events are there. Things that we've done and discovered in our lifetime, there's no turning back. The Pandora's box is opened. So this is exciting. We are in exciting times. I mean, John was, but we are even more in exciting times. It won't be long before these events start to unfold. Verse 11 is interesting. He says, he was unjust, let him be unjust. He was filthy, let him be filthy. He was righteous, let him be righteous. He who was holy, let him be holy. This isn't a contradiction to the salvation call. This is more of a status quo statement. You ever hear the expression, you know, somebody says something, you say, well, it is what it is. It doesn't really mean anything. It's basically, yeah, it is what it is. It's the status quo. These things are going to happen. In other words, this is going to unravel so quickly, there won't be a whole lot of time to change character. They'll be what they'll be, but time is running out. And that's a call to all of us here today. Listen to God's word. Pray about God's word. If the spirit is stirring you, react on God's word. You know, Do something with what you're hearing with God's word. Because we're not always going to have what we have today. Many have been lied to by Satan. And I've heard, well, I'm going to wait. I'm going to have as much fun as possible here. It's that fun thing again, that fun doctrine that I'm going to address, especially towards the end. I'm going to have as much fun here on the earth as possible and then convert. This lie, unfortunately, has permeated today's teens. The logic is, you know, sin is fun, and I want to enjoy everything I can get out of it because I'm going to be deprived from that fun in heaven. Well, that's interesting. Are we talking about sin or are we talking about fun? Because sin's pleasures are there fleetingly. I'm not going to lie to anybody and say, oh, you, you don't want to try sin. You're going to be miserable. You're going to, you're, it's going to feed your flesh. You're going to like it. But it's going to, it's going to trap you. It's, going to, it's like a bear trap, you know? They put out the food. The food looks good. They walk in the trap. The steel jaws take him by the leg and it's all over. He's done. 
And that's what sin does. It looks good. It smells good. It sounds good. And then you get trapped. And then it's all over. It's the age-old lie that giving into your base desires is much more fun than coming to God. Who ruins fun? God's the cosmic fun ruiner, right? <laughs> and that's a lie. Who do you think started that lie? But it's just the opposite. Perceived fun outside of God's boundaries can prove to be deadly. And I'll just give you a few examples. Number one, sexual relations outside of marriage. It's a gamble. It leads to diseases, unwanted pregnancies, people who get used, and sometimes legal issues. It's a very dangerous world out there today. Euphoria. I just want to have that euphoria outside of God's boundaries. Abusing drugs and alcohol. Well, the list is even greater. Leads to overdoses, health problems, trouble with the law. I've, I've had the occasion to, it's something about heroin, to deal with in my law enforcement career a few young women who had kids who totally would have rather shooting up with heroin than seeing their kids again. What happens is it, it's satanic. It takes away their maternal instincts. It's really heartbreaking and it's hard to see. Having the kids taken away, alienation from friends and families, incarceration and poverty. That's what this stuff leads to. So, hey, it's fun. Sure it is. It's fun for a time until you're trapped, until it takes you down and, you know, it, it's all over with. The real fun and pleasure, my life is fun. <laughs> Coming to Christ and being a pastor, I didn't put fun aside. I have a great time. I laugh more than I've probably ever laughed in my life. I love to laugh. It's a great thing. And probably, well, not probably, but... You know, I wasn't born in a Christian home. I didn't grow up as a Christian. So in a sense, I was the prodigal a little bit. And I've experienced both sides of the fence. And I've got to tell you, I'd never go back. That would be idiotic for me. You know, I don't have that desire to go back to that life. I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit. I'm a king's kid. I'm going to heaven. I have that blessed hope of the resurrection. There's no reason for me to go back. You know, there's, there's nothing there for me. Verse 12. And behold, words in red again, and behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you that these things in the churches, I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. And the spirit and the bride say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come, and whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. Here you have it, the end of the book, just about the end. And you see the dichotomy of two types of people in the world. And you see the, the reward or the, you know, the manifestations or the ramifications of which side you're on. And the world loves to div divide us, doesn't it? You're either Republican or Democrat. You're either black or white. You're either male or female. Under God's tent, none of those things exist. Under God's tent, it's a very big tent and it includes everyone. And under God's tent, it's either those who want what God has to offer or those who don't. That's it. Everybody else is fighting amongst themselves and you know, Satan loves that. He loves to cause that chaos. But God says we're all under the same tent. And it's either you follow me or you don't follow me. Those are truly, it's the dichotomy of two, um, the true dichotomy in the world. Verse 14, the seventh blessed, the seventh and last blessed of Revelation. 
There's actually another, and this doesn't happen that often. Actually, I don't think it's happened at all in this book, but there was um, a newer or some other manuscripts that say, um, blessed is he, let me find it here. Blessed are those who, instead of do his commandments, who wash their blood or wash their robes in the blood of the lamb. And I think that's more appropriate. To the unbeliever, when we wash our robes in the blood of the lamb, we come to Christ. We come to eternal life because he died and shed his blood on that tree 2,000 years ago for the remission of our sins. That's what the unbeliever does. He comes to Christ. To the believer, when we wash our robes in the blood of the lamb, it's a sanctification process. We maintain our purity and we continue to be sanctified. God keeps changing us. He keeps perfecting us, right? And verse 15, it says, outside the city, there's going to be some people or a group. Um, I don't believe that the, the ones that are mentioned here, the, the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, and the murderers and idolaters, um, I don't believe they're outside of the city on the earth. And there is some question about this. A lot of uh, Bible commentators have a problem with this. Um, I don't believe they're on the earth mingled with the redeemed, but I believe that they're in the lake of fire. They're way out there. They're outside the city. They're outside God's perfection. There's no more sin. Dogs. Philippians 3.2 says this, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. Beware of dogs. This could be the origin to the signs that people put on their fences. I don't know. But what do we learn? <laughs> took you a moment. What do we learn from this? What we learn is there's, do there's no dogs in heaven. Only cats. God's a cat lover. <laughs> okay. But in the Bible, it doesn't mean that God doesn't like four-legged furry animals. Dogs are emblematic in the scripture, and it's been used before of Gentiles, the unclean, and false teachers. It's just an emblem. It's just a symbolism. But here's another question that a lot of people want to know. Do animals go to heaven? Right? Are they in eternity? And I think that's interesting. I actually looked into it a little bit. To my knowledge, only evil and sin are excluded from eternity. I don't see any reason why I, animals would be specifically prohibited. I mean, it's God's decision, not mine. But let's just look at this for a little bit. Let's play with this. Like lions and animals programmed to kill so he can survive and, and eat, right? Humans kill because they make a willful choice. A human doesn't have to kill another human just for survival. The purpose of animals in Eden before sin, and remember, sin led to, if you read Genesis, everybody ate the herbs of the grass, even the animals. It was sin that led to carnivorous behavior man and animal. But the purpose of animals in Eden was for companionship. A few scriptures here. Ecclesiastes 3.21 says, who knows whether man goes upward and animals go downward. And in Revelation 19, Jesus is riding a literal white horse out of heaven, out of the, the, the domain of God to earth, as he rode a donkey in the triumphal entry. And in the millennial kingdom, it shows that even the wild animals, and I've covered this, become docile as they were in Eden. And lastly, this will really blow your mind, I studied the, well, I didn't study it that good, I actually came back to it. The living creatures in heaven, in God's throne room, remember Revelation, I believe it was three or four, where we're in the throne room, we see the 24 elders and the, you know, the different creatures in, in heaven, and we see what's called the living creatures, okay? That's actually a bad translation. The word for living creatures in the Greek is zoon, where we get the word zoo. And it's always been translated in the Greek as animals or beasts. 
I believe that the translators looked at that, and because maybe they were concerned about offending the creatures or being disrespectful, they translated into living creatures, but it's always been animals or beasts. And some may say, well, where are you going, Joe? This is weird. You've been good for a long time, now you're getting kooky. <laughs> really, not so. What's any more weird about a, an angel who has six wings and flies around? We look at ourselves and say, well, we're perfect. Well, God could create whatever he wants, and if you know, the living creatures have the face like a lion, the face like a, a calf, and, and one that looks like a flying eagle, maybe they're kind of like pets. I don't know. I don't know, okay? But it's, it's interesting conjecture. But what I am sure of, if animals are in eternity, let's just go back to animals, they won't bite you or jump on you, and you won't have to clean up after them. So that's a good thing. I don't know why pastors have to be so dogmatic, pardon the pun, on the unknowns, and alienate whole groups of people. It is possible you may see Spot, Fido, Lucky, or your pet frog in heaven. I don't know. But it's, it's good. It's possible. The only caveat to all this is that if animals get to heaven, it's because they're innocent. I don't believe they have the propensity to sin. They're just animals. And God's programmed them a certain way. But people go to hell. So what I want to stress to us is, even for those animal lovers, that people need to be saved, not animals. It's good to love animals, and I know that sometimes they're more faithful than people as far as loyalty, but people need to be saved. Jesus came to call and seek the lost, and we have to have a heart and love, and not to be reclusive like hermits, but to ask, Lord, give me the love for the unsaved, because they're the ones that need to be the net. We, you know, we, they need to be redeemed. They need to understand the love of God. They need to understand the whole redemption process. So that's important to remember. Verse 16. Christ says that he's the root and the offspring of David. Hmm, sounds like an oxymoron. How could he be the progenitor and the progeny at the same time? How can he be the one who was the, you know, the root and also be the offspring? You know, this is a, a picture of pre and post incarnate name. It's amazing. And Jesus often spoke in paradoxes. Uh, he's also called the bright and morning star, which is his eternal name. And there's many names for Jesus throughout the scripture. And they all have a meaning assigned to them. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit, the Holy Spirit calls mankind and the bride, believers, say, come. Come, Jesus, and also to the unsaved, come to Jesus. There's a, there's a dual purpose there. As the bride of Christ, we want our groom to come quickly. We want Jesus to come for us. Now, in the old, and I went through this with the whole marriage supper of the Lamb. In Middle Eastern uh, days, the, uh, the groom would go away and prepare a place for his bride, and she didn't know what hour he, he would come, so she was always prepared. But in those days, it could have been uh, weeks, it could have been longer than that, and she was just yearning for her her husband to come back. And that's so cool how Jesus makes an analogy between us as the bride of Christ and him as the bridegroom. So we want our groom to come quickly. But the groom wants something else. He's also looking for the unsaved to come. And we should have the same mind as our bridegroom. He wants others to come into the fold and complete the bride. And I look at that in the parables of the woman with the lost coin. You know, she had 10 coins, one was lost, and she went, swept everything, moved the furniture to find that one last coin. 
We see the parable of the uh, sheep. You know, the shepherd has 100 sheep, one goes astray, and he puts the 99 in a safe place, but he goes and searches for that one last sheep. And we need to have the same mind as our husband, as our groom does, looking for that one lost sheep, that one last person, that one last tribulation martyr uh, to get saved before the Lord comes back. We need to be in harmony with the Holy Spirit in calling sinners to repentance. Verse 18, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, a God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And we see this warning. Now, this warning has been in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4.2 has a similar warning in the Torah. Uh, Proverbs 30, 5 and 6 has a similar warning. God is very serious about his word. Don't add to what I say and don't take away. Right? The, um, the scribes, the old uh, Jewish scribes, before they had copy machines and books, when they would do the scrolls, they would take every, each Hebrew letter, not a jot or tittle would be lost from copying the manuscripts over and over. And that was their job. All day long they would copy the Hebrew letters and make sure God's word was perfect. And if they made a mistake, they would have to take that whole scroll and destroy it and start all over again. But that was really meticulous work. So these people took God's word very seriously. And we also need to take God's word seriously. And this can be done in many ways. Well, salvation is in Jesus. And some, under the pseudo-Christian uh, supposed groups, will add to salvation. Well, Jesus is good, but you need this too to get into heaven. You need this too to be redeemed. That's adding to God's word. And we say, well, in context, Pastor Joe, it says prophecy. Well, this whole book covers all of those subjects. If you've been with us for the last few months, we've covered all the, the, um, those subjects, and they're in there. Even adding that men can be, become like God. One cult does that. When you die, you can become like God, and you could have your own creation and your own kingdom, and then you could have, make little people, and it just is this succession of godhood. Taking away. Let's talk about taking away. Taking away of Jesus' deity. There are those under the uh, guise of being Christian that say, yeah, we believe everything you believe, Christian, but Jesus is not deity. That's a problem. Popular preachers today take away the gospel. They take away the cross. They take away the shedding of the blood. They take away hell. They take away Jesus as the only way to salvation. And I could go on and on. They're taking away from God's word. And quite frankly, they may be making a lot of money now and become famous and go on talk shows, but I wouldn't want to stand before God and be in their shoes when he says, you know, what did you do? You only put the nice stuff in there. You took away all the hard sayings that I wanted my people to hear. Remember, if we're saved, it's a good thing. But what are we saved from? We're saved from sin. We're saved from hell. We're saved from our own destruction, right? So it's important. Chuck Smith, um, the founder of Calvary, I like listening to him. If you ever met him, he's a real gentle man, and I've never seen a guy get upset or frustrated, and he's just such a, a sweet uh, saint. He's in his 80s now, but he, he would get fiery when it came to preachers who would take away the hard things of the Bible. And he, he would say in those days, he called it soft-peddling. That's an interesting word. He said, those preachers who soft-pedal the gospel. But it's true. He would get upset because he was a champion for God's word. And if we're champions for God's word, we don't want anybody adding or taking away to what God has said in his word. 
Now, a few points to ponder before we close. Number one, studying this book has really revolutionized the way I perceive heaven. And many have perceived heaven in a certain way. Many people perceive heaven as disembodied spirits, in, in an incorporeal existence, you know, without a body, uh, in clouds with harps, bored out of their skulls for eternity. That's more of a sentence than anything else. And we know that that's not true. But where does this come from, for those of you who are interested? Some of the, after the disciples' uh, years went by, and some of, I guess they would call the next generation of, of uh, church leaders, Clement, Origen, a little bit of Augustine. And this stuff was rooted in Jewish mysticism, which God condemned himself, and Greek philosophy and Gnosticism. Randy Alcorn wrote a book on heaven, and he used the word, he terms the coin Christoplatonism. And basically, it allegorizes scripture and makes heaven a very dull place to be. For the record, I believe in heaven. We're going to be worshiping. We're going to be singing. We're going to be eating. We're going to be dancing. We're going to be conversing. You know, that's my picture of heaven. And I believe, I mean, I could go through all the scriptures. It's going to be a great place to be. It's going to be exciting. It's going to be fun. No headaches. No having to get up for work the next morning. God's a, you know, a wonderful God, a loving father will be in his presence. And that's my picture of heaven. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> and I believe that the scripture backs that up. But at this point, I must explain the difference or the divergence and convergence of God's existence with ours, the way I understand it. So if, to get a handle on it, right? If this, is, if this is, let's see, right to left to right, you're looking, okay. If this is time, and we're going from this direction to this direction, and if you read uh, Genesis, and you just don't blow through it, but you really meditate on it, God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. He walked in the cool of the garden. He had a relationship, a loving relationship with them. They had a great time together. And in the beginning, here was man's domain and here was God's domain, and they were together. They were married. When sin and rebellion hit, if we're following time, right? You, seeing things on a graph really helps, but uh, if we're going in this direction, here comes sin. Now God's plane of existence starts to separate from man's plane of existence, and that's where we are today. We're separated. Yes, we have a down payment of the Holy Spirit. Yes, Jesus is our intercessor and mediator. But the full redemption process is not, is not complete in our time domain. What happens eventually as the Lord comes back in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem is brought out of heaven, and the Bible says that God tabernacles with men. So what you see is this now, a, a period of time in history where God's uh, existence in his domain now becomes married to man's again. And it's something that's hard for us because we're here. So a lot of us, it's hard. Well, we, you know, I'm trying to understand it. Maybe I have questions after church. It's hard for us to understand it, but there will be a point in time where it's going to be like this again, and it's going to be awesome. And there's nothing that's going to change that again. You understand? So when I talk about heaven right now, we're here. When we die, we go to be with the Lord. Okay. And we're in a different uh, domain at this point in time right now. But when eternity comes and time runs out and God's with us again and he tabernacles with men, we're going to be with him all the time. Our domain will be in his domain. So I talk about heaven now, but eternity, they're together. A few other ways to dis describe it or discuss it is the Greek word for heaven is uranos which is where we get the name for the planet Uranus, which was named after the Greek god of the sky. Now, 
Uranus in the Greek can mean air, sky, heaven, elevation, eternity, or God's throne, depending on the context. And we've used enough of the scripture where all these are applicable. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul speaks about three heaven levels. Now, if you follow Genesis, you follow what the Apostle Paul said, here's the first Uranus. Right now is the atmosphere. Right around us is the first Uranus. It's the air, right? It's the atmosphere. In Genesis, the one Uranus was separated from the outer Uranus from the, by the canopy of water. And the second heaven, or the second Uranus, is more like outer space, okay? Elevation for further out there. The third Uranus that Paul speaks about, again, it's all contextual, is he was brought up to the third heaven. Paul was actually brought up and, and saw incredible visions, and I believe he was in the throne room of God, as John was, and he said, I was even given a, an affliction to buffet me, lest I be lifted up with pride. Could you imagine what you would be like coming back if you saw God's throne room? It would change your life completely. So there's the three heavens that we speak about. So at this point, heaven, eternity, and God's domain are all tangible, and they all converge in one point. It's all together now. There's no distance between us and God anymore. You've heard the expression, home is where the heart is. Well, heaven really is where our God is, and, and he's coming to us. Arnie uh, one did a Wednesday night. He talked about two worlds in collision. When Jesus came, two worlds were in collision. Man's world and a part of heaven, a part of God came down and was with us 2,000 years ago on the earth. And that's why there was so much turmoil, because two worlds were in co uh, collision, and the resulting vectors from that collision. In light of this, two more things. Number one, I calculated in this chapter the variations of the word coming and quickly or swiftly. The word for coming was repeated seven times. Quickly and swiftly was repeated four times. The word for quickly and swiftly in the Greek is taku, where we get tachycardia or tachometer. And it means an imminent suddenness with a rapid succession in the unfolding of events. So my understanding is the invitation to salvation, especially through this chapter, is always there. The invitation to salvation. And it's been there for a long time, but don't wait too long, because when the Lord comes back, events will unfold so quickly that there may not be time for a change of character. And in light of that last thing, Pastor Anthony went to a um, prophecy conference. Uh, a lot of these big prophecy buffs, Chuck Missler was one of them. And he believes, like I do and many other Bible teachers, that we are in very exciting times and we are in the end times. And he asked the question, basically, where are you with God? And what are you doing with your life? Where's the purpose to our life? Do we understand, have we meditated on, have we read his word and understand what God will have us to do in this life? Because things are going to happen very quickly. And that's one of the questions I leave you with. Where are you with the Lord? And what does God have to do for you? Or what is God going to have you do? And have you prayed about that? Jim Elliott said, quote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's very profound. And in verse 21, it says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord.